Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. Recently, actor Brad Pitt shared his struggles with undiagnosed prosopagnosia, also known as face blindness. And although it seems to be assumed to be rare, doctors have started to move towards the conclusion that it's a little more common than generally realized. Today, I'm here with Dr. Olga Nickelspur, a neuropsychologist with Hackensack Meridian Health and at the Neuroscience Institute at Hackensack University Medical Center and an assistant professor for the Department of Neurology at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine to talk to us about what this condition really entails. Thanks for being here, Dr. Nichols. Thank you for having me. So before we talk about prosopagnosia, I wanted to talk a little bit about you. So you're a neuropsychologist. What is that? What got you into that? What brought you here? That's actually an interesting question. Uh, So neuropsychologists are psychologists who are studying the relationship between brain and behavior. So we're looking at, by looking at the tests, by looking at how you do on certain standardized tests, we're trying to establish how our different parts of the brain are working, how are the functions of the brain are working, things like memory, attention, speed of thinking, et cetera, including visual-spatial processing, which kind of ties us into the topic of prosopagnosia. Um, But this is basically what neuropsychologist does. Now, how I came to it is actually quite interesting. I wasn't thinking of becoming a neuropsychologist, but now I can't think of anything else, obviously. So I was always wanted to be a clinical psychologist, but I was just kind of working as a neuropsychological tester at Columbia University. And one of the externs there thought, you know what, that's going to be perfect for you. You already are doing this. You're already doing the testing. The next logical step for you is to go for a neuropsychology degree. And I applied, and I fell in love, and that's absolutely the the work of my life. (laughs) So that's how I fell into neuropsychology, by serendipity, but definitely um, it was a lucky serendipity. So, um, and here I am. Um, I did work for a while in cognitive rehabilitation at Rusk uh, at NYU. So kind of came a full circle, didn't just administer the testing, but also was able to rehabilitate some of the deficits that sometimes happen as a result of the injury. And I continue to do some of it here at Hackensack. So what kind of people come in to see you? Like what makes what makes us need a neuropsychologist? Because it's both neurology and like, when do I come see you? That's actually an excellent question. People come to us for different reasons. Uh, my main role at Hackensack as a neuropsychologist for the Center for Memory Loss and Brain Health, aka Dementia Center. So very often as uh, people get a little bit older, all of us obviously lose a little bit of memory, but do start searching for words a little bit more often. And people don't often know, is this normal? Is it not normal? They may have some other neurological symptoms that also have cognitive symptoms that come with it. And they're just not sure, am I I supposed to be like this at my age or am I not? And sometimes it becomes apparent that you shouldn't be. It becomes more impairing. Uh, And that's when people come to see a neurologist. And a neurologist will probably want some of our help determining what is causing this picture. Because it's really not the, you know, they can look at the structure of the brain and MRI, but the structure and function are not the same. You can have very 
poor MRI imaging and still function normally and the other way around. So that's where neuropsychologists come in. We try to establish how are these functions of the brain are working. How is your memory working? How is your attention working or not? And is there a certain discernible pattern that we're trained to recognize to help the diagnosis? That's one reason people would come to us, is to help with diagnosis from a neurology perspective, from a physiatry perspective, if there's an injury. Another way people come to us is if there has been an injury, or a stroke, for example, or perhaps they have a known neurological diagnosis, like multiple sclerosis that's known to cause cognitive impairments. Um, and so people sometimes come to us to establish the baseline, but also to over time see if there's any change in their cognitive function to help, again, the neurology neurologist determine, do we need to tweak the treatment? Do we need to change the medication? Do we need to do something else? That's another way. And the third way, again, if there's an injury and someone thinks, you know, maybe we can remediate this, is there something that could be helped? So if someone had a stroke and now, for example, they may not be able to see part of their field or maybe they have um, a language deficit or maybe they have a memory deficit or if someone had a brain injury and have the same issues, they may have a tension deficit that's newly acquired, that's newly developed as a result of the injury, they may come to us to evaluate to see if it's actually objectively so, and if so, then maybe we could improve it by engaging in cognitive rehabilitation, but the neuropsychological evaluation would be the basis for it all. It would be informing the treatment plan, basically. And the evaluation, I remember you mentioning it is a very long process. Yes, it's extensive. So depending on what it is, especially for the pediatric evaluations, where often part of the reason is to see whether this is impacting their academic success, whether they need some kind of accommodations, that might be hours and hours in face-to-face contact, let alone the scoring and writing and interpretation. For adults, it's a little bit less involved, but still it could be two to three hours face-to-face. And then plus the rest of it is, again, interpretation, scoring, consulting with other professionals and things like that. So it's a very extensive, in-depth process that and that we really love, actually. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds like for great reward after. It's, it's very rewarding. It's definitely rewarding, especially when you can make a recommendation for treatment. And that's really becomes, uh, that's the kind of the holy grail for us. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about prosopagnosia. Mm-hmm. I'm saying it slowly because I feel like I keep mispronouncing it. Um, what are the symptoms? Because would just it's hard to understand, right? Yes. Not being able to recognize a face. Right. So what would the symptoms be? So it's interesting because it's not um, the same intensity for everyone. People have different degrees of intensity of prosopagnosia. Um, on the mildest spectrum, it would be still more than just like not being good with faces, right? It's not your run of the mill, I'm not good with faces. It's more than that. You truly may not be able to recognize people that you know (laughs) outside of context, for example. On a moderate spectrum, you may not recognize your assistant of six years, right? You really do not recognize the faces. Um, And I'll tell you a little bit what it actually feels like based on some writing that we know about. Um, On a more extreme range, they truly cannot recognize a face. Like no matter how well they know you, they just don't know. They don't see it as a face, right? And so they can't recognize it at all. And the most extreme is actually some somewhat related syndrome called Capgras syndrome, which is an imposter syndrome where you all of a sudden may think 
that someone you know well has been substituted with a double or an imposter, and they don't look like your significant other or that family member or someone you know, it's definitely an imposter. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's quite dramatic. So it, yeah. as you see, it ranges from very mild to very dramatic. Wow. And how would you even, <clears throat> like, my trouble is how would you realize that you have this? Good point. Um, so for that, we're going to have to delve a little bit into how it was described in literature. So the person who really described it well, and probably the best, for, to, for me at least, is a neurologist, Oliver Sacks. So Oliver Sacks, unfortunately, passed a few years ago, but he was a neurologist who practiced in New York City at Columbia uh, as he's at the late end of his career. And he, in his book, The Man Who Mistook the Wife for a Hat, described it exquisitely. Um, and this, in this case particularly, he described it as this was a, an, old, an older gentleman who was a very prolific singer, musician, musicologist, um, and he, in addition to that, was a painter, like a lifelong painter, and he all of a sudden started not recognizing people he should know, and it, it became apparent to others because he would not speak to them, he would not address them. Um, and uh, at some point when he came to see Dr. Sex in the office, this is the reason why the book is called The Man Who Mistook the Wife for a, for a Hat, he literally tried to take his wife's head, li- tried to lift it up and tried to put it on top, on top of his head because he thought that her head is his hat. <laughs> he completed, what? yes, that's, it's pretty dramatic. So Dr. Sachs was really, you know, bu- you know he was kind of, um, not sure how to what to make of this. This is really rare, and th- that gets to the question. This is incredibly rare, um, and still is, even though it's becoming more recognized. It's still rare. So at the time, he would, did not know what to make of it. So he came over to his house, and you know, this gentleman is completely normal in every other aspect at this point, at least as far as he knows. He has in-depth knowledge of music. He's able to sing, at least for a while. But what he did see is he noticed that his paintings went from, and they were chronologically arranged on the wall, went from very beautifully, exquisitely detailed representative painting to all the way completely disjointed blotches of paint, just angles and shapes. Hmm. Um, Completely non-representative and completely disjointed. And so when he talked to his wife about it, she said, well, don't you see this is evolution of, of his of him as a painter? But he said, well, you know what? I actually think that's his pathology, that he went from being able to, to pull see. together, see it as a meaningful whole, pull these angles and blotches of paint into a meaningful whole to not being able to integrate it at all. And that's how probably the prosopognosics see the world as this sort of in extreme they see it as these disjointed blotches of paint angles and lines, kind of almost like a Picasso painting, if mm-hmm. you will, just features that are not connected into meaningful whole. Um, so that's what they kind of see. Now, in an interesting twist of fate, Dr. Sachs himself, who always kind of knew that he wasn't great with faces, later in his career, went back to Australia to reconnect with his older brother that he hasn't seen for decades. And turns out this older brother has the same kind of difficulty with his faces. And they kind of talked about amongst themselves and realized, I think we have prosopognosia. And he did. He actually diagnosed himself eventually with moderate degree prosopognosia because he started 
not recognizing his assistant of six years if she wasn't in the office, if she was outside, if there were no cues around that this is her. Um, things like that, even even some more familiar people he wouldn't recognize sometimes, and he realized that about himself. So he started using cues, and this is what people usually do. They use the cues to, that are non-visual to mm-hmm. recognize who is this. So, And the treatment would be something that would be like, um, you know, we're going to teach you strategies. And they're not perfect by any means, but they're strategies that might help you recognize your loved one. Maybe you can zero in on their voice. Maybe it's the the hair. Um, maybe it's some other feature like a nose, um, a posture. People usually take on certain posture and they have sort of mimicry and things mm-hmm. like that. So they do, they do kind of rely on these non-visual necessarily cues to recognize the people. And if they're on the phone, they have no problem recognizing them. They know that it's that person. Because they can hear them. It's they can a hear them. Like it's, not, it's not a visual input. It's a completely different input. Correct. It's a disconnect between the visual association areas in the brain, these areas that are processing complex information. And specifically, there's a very small area that is specifically for face recognition, believe it or not. It's called fusiform gyrus. It's, wow. a, it's very specific. The reason why it's so rare in its pure form is because it's really rare to get that kind of focal injury, that kind of specific injury to that thing. That's why mm-hmm. there's usually other symptoms around it, unless it's developmental. So these are the people who are born with it. And the vast majority of cases are people who are born with it. They usually don't have any other developmental issues. They're completely normal people. They just have difficulty recognizing faces. So they're not distracted by everything else and like no. your best friend walks up to you in Target because that's happened to me before. No, no, it's not <laughs> like that. Yes, we all have these moments and that's exactly what I mean. It's not the run of the mill. We all have errors of right. recognition sometimes. We all do and sometimes we're distracted. Sometimes maybe we're just lost in thought mm-hmm. and our best friend is like, hello, I've been calling. You didn't see me? You yeah. didn't say hello. Not quite like that. This is really, truly not recognizing. No matter what, they could come up to you and you're like, unless they start talking, you're still not sure. Um, So definitely. So the ones that are developmental, they kind of usually just learn to compensate by using these different cues, by learning the cues. People who acquire it through injury or stroke, for example, there have been some descriptions of spontaneous recovery, but generally they also learn to just kind of compensate for it by learning the cues um yeah it's interesting very interesting so is there any way that this could be cured or not really there's no cure there's really not a cure you just kind of learn to compensate for it wow Mm -hmm. wow that's that's wild so can the can people who have this, can they recognize themselves or do they look in the mirror and also not recognize themselves? It depends on the degree. So yes, in, in sort of moderate to severe, I think they sometimes have difficulty recognizing their own face as well. Is there any way that it could be maybe like a temporary thing that happens to them? So like I said, there was some um, cases of spontaneous recovery after an injury. So it could be temporary in that sense. Um, it, it's kind of hard because sometimes people describe these cases in literature that sounds like prosopagnosia, but they may be more of a psychiatric episodes, in which case it is definitely more temporary. And once the episode resolves, they go back to recognizing people. So it's hard to tell. But I think if it's neurological, if it's truly because of the damage to the fusiform gyrus, it, it's usually unless it kind of heals and kind of there's a, some kind of um, re-innervation, if you will, if some pl- brain plasticity kicks in. I doubt that there's going to be a recovery. 
So is this genetic since it is a developmental? It's a good question. So yes, in some cases, people believe that it's genetic. Like I said, in Dr. Sachs's case, because there's more than right. one person um, involved in the family, most likely there's some genetic basis to it. Have you ever had to diagnose someone with pre- pre- No, and this is why I think it's, it's incredibly rare. I think most of us probably go our entire career without seeing a case. I wonder if we're going to see more of this now, now that Brad Pitt is out there yeah. without presopagnosia. <laughs> but no, most of us do not really see it. Um, wow. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly rare. So, but that also goes back to your specialty in itself, mm-hmm. why your specialty is so incredibly rare. I think um, our, who connected us for the podcast today, she said that you were one of like two people in our whole system that does this particular testing and this particular specialty. So I think that all the above is just rare. Well, I think they're more neuropsychologists in the, in the system than just me and Dr. Kira, <laughs> which I think what she was referring to. Um, we definitely have also the JFK has neuropsychology department. So definitely more neuropsychologists than she thinks there are. We have become more prevalent over the years. We definitely were more rare um, about 20 years ago, I would say. Mm-hmm. But it has become actually quite um, quite a, a field, and we made a name for ourselves. Um, but within this location, definitely, it's just Dr. Kara, myself, and I think maybe one pediatric neuropsychologist as well. Wow. So I wanted to just go off topic for a little bit because sure. I feel like you've probably met very interesting cases over your career. What is a case that like really just stood out to you and just like blew your mind? It's actually interesting. I always talk about this case, and it's the case that I call the one that got away. Okay. <laughs> so we're always called on to diagnose dementia, but sometimes we need to differentiate, is it dementia or is it something else? And I had a case of a 77-year-old woman who came in with her husband, who was older but was still a practicing um, lawyer. And their concern was that this woman who, she was an Orthodox Jewish woman, she was about to marry her her youngest daughter. And for all of her children, she was a master silk silk screener and he created the Jewish wedding contracts herself by hand. Mm -hmm. And when it came to this last one, she could not approach it. She did not know how to do it. She also started having difficulties at work. She was a substitute teacher for many years and all of a sudden, it seemed like uh, she was constantly complaining how um, something is always going wrong and she's being blamed for it. And they initially thought maybe it's just some dynamic at work um, because she also switched jobs. But eventually realized something is brewing, something is going on, something is not right with mom, right? And so at this point she came to see us. Um, she looked uh, on testing, she presented as completely, uh, definitely with dementia, significant cognitive decline, memory decline, cognitive slowing. She was very slow to answer, very slow to process information. Her attention was not great. Um, across the board, she really was well below where she should be for her age. Um, and so I was working, I was an extern, I was a green ex- extern working <laughs> with a neuropsychologist with like probably 50 years of experience. And so we kind of gave her a lot of tests and we're just kind of looking at all the data. And and she said, you know, I really think she's she really is dementing. I think this is some kind of a sub- dementia of some kind, not Alzheimer's, but different kind. And so we diagnosed her, but we also were concerned that maybe there is an element of depression to it because she did present a little bit tearful and she was kind of becoming an empty nester. So we thought maybe there is some of that. And we recommended 
since we can cure dementia, maybe we can at least help her with depression. So we did mm -hmm. recommend psychiatry consult. So fast forward four years later, completely different medical center. I was collecting my dissertation data at Columbia, and I walk out into the waiting area at the, at the neurology clinic to get my research participant, and I hear Olga, and I turn around, and it's this lady with her husband, and this lady remembered not only my name, to buy in, I told her I was about to get married. I told her she liked my ring, so she asked me about the ring and about the wedding. And to buy in, I kind of judiciously disclosed mm -hmm. my information. She remembered all of it. Wow. She remembered when I was getting married, where I was going to honeymoon at the time. She remembered all of it. Well, it turned out wow. she was, she treated, they did go with the psychiatry consult, and they treated her for depression, and she got all better. Wow. <laughs> and it was a pseudo-dementia. It was not a dementia. It was pseudo-dementia. Wow. <laughs> she that's presented. Crazy. You would have never known. Yeah, because she presented in a On testing, she was completely impaired across the board. The one thing that did give it away a little bit, and we kind of disregarded because of degree of impairment, we thought maybe she's just too demented to pass these tests. We always test for effort and motivation, and she failed these measures. However, people who are truly, truly very, very in advanced stage, moderate to advanced stages, they could fail them just because they're so impaired. So we just thought maybe that's what it is. Well, we were wrong. <laughs> so that's the case that I was get fascinated by because how did we miss it? Like she looked by all intents and purposes, demented to us. So thankfully she wasn't. Um, and she was treated and she, she was, was treated and she got all better. That's awesome. That was fantastic. Yeah, that's the one that I love talking about because there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it also is kudos to you all because that was the suggestion that you made for based sure. off of the data you had. For sure, for sure. Wow, that's wild. Anything else you want to share with our listeners today? Yeah, sure. So I just, as I was talking about before, the one thing to be to be mindful of is the prosopagnosia often comes with other deficits because, again, because it's so difficult to injure just that particular area of the brain. So often people may not just not recognize faces, but they also may have other forms of visual agnosia. So they may not recognize even objects. So, for example, that musicologist, the Dr. Sachs reported, um, re exquisitely described in his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Um, he also asked him, he pulled out a, a flower, and he said, what is it? And he said, I don't know, it has, it's red, it has this beautifully kind of irregular shape, it has a green linear appendage to it, but he would not say it's a flower. And then he said, why didn't you smell it? And he smelled it, and he said, oh, beautiful, it's an early rose. So he was able to identify it via a different modality, but he could not by looking at it. Wow. <laughs> could not even venture a guess, evidently, according to Dr. Sachs. So it's just fascinating how the brain really works or doesn't work. Very fascinating. Yes. And if you so think that your brain is not working properly, to definitely come and see you guys over at the Definitely see a neurologist, for sure. Definitely see a neurologist. If you suspect there's anything going on, there's no harm in seeing a neurologist. If you have any neurological symptoms, definitely see a neurologist. Start with your PCP if you're not sure your primary care doctor. If they feel like this is beyond their scope, they will refer you to a neurologist. And we're more than happy to see you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nichols. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. So interesting.